question that Peter is addressing in this passage is, how do you respond when your faith is mocked? Sometimes you may experience that on a personal level. You perceive that others are, uh, have hatred in their hearts towards you simply because you are a Christian or hold to a Christian position on something. Sometimes, perhaps more commonly, your faith is uh, mocked just in the broader culture. Maybe you see a comment on Facebook. Uh, maybe you're watching a television series that sort of characterizes or gives a false characterization of the way Christians are. Uh, in some ways, uh, your faith will uh, be mocked. How are we to respond? Peter uh, tells us how we are to respond in this passage. He says, very surprisingly, that when you are reviled for your faith in Jesus Christ, you are to rejoice because you are blessed. You are not to give in to the urge to get back at people, but rather you are to entrust yourself to God and seek to do good for the very people who are mocking you. We will see that this is such a high calling that once again, as always, we need to look to Jesus Christ for strength in order to fulfill it. Let's look at Peter's instructions to us this morning. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you also, at the revelation of his glory, may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also, who suffer according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the spirit of glory and the spirit of God to rest upon our hearts. We need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds that we may rejoice when we are reviled and that we may entrust ourselves to God and continue to do good, even towards those who revile us. Father, we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts today, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. What First Peter gives us is a theology of suffering, a theology of persecution in particular. One commentator, a man named I. Howard Marshall, in his commentary, observes that the Jews had for generations been a people who were persecuted, whose faith had been opposed in the broader culture to which they had belonged. That had been a rich tradition in uh, the Jewish communities ever since the exile. You might think of the opposition to faith that people experienced, maybe in the book of Daniel, 
Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and the way that faith was opposed in those days. Uh, Jeremiah, God sent word uh, through Jeremiah to instruct people how they are to relate to Babylon. They are to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent them. So the Jews had for centuries developed a rich theology of persecution. But many of Peter's readers were experiencing persecution and opposition for their faith for the first time. They uh, had been uh, fully embraced within their communities where they belonged, but now that they had embraced Jesus Christ, suddenly they, find that they were finding themselves on the outside. They were experiencing in various ways cultural isolation and personal hostility. Peter writes about that uh, throughout his uh, epistle. He says in verse 14 of our passage that some are being reviled for the name of Christ. He says uh, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, that some are being slandered as evildoers. Some were being harshly treated as they sought to work for God's honor and glory in chapter 2, verse 20. And some of them were being maligned in chapter uh, 4, verse 4. For many of them, this was new. And Peter is writing to help them get perspective, help them think through the issues that they, uh, in their experience as they were experiencing opposition for their faith. How were they to think about it? What sense were they to make of it? How were they to respond? And we need, every Christian needs a theology of persecution as well. We have lived for a long time in our culture, in, uh, in a culture that in many ways respects the Christian faith. But cultures change. We are not in control of how the culture changes around us. Sometimes we uh, don't really observe the ways that our culture is changing. Sometimes we are like the proverbial frog in boiling water. We uh, do not realize how radically our culture is changing. For instance, there was a man named Leslie Newbigin who was a pastor uh, in the Church of Scotland. His uh, dates are 1909 to 1998. And he, uh, although he was a pastor in the Church of Scotland, he spent time as a missionary in India for a number of years. And he felt that when he had left England, it was a predominantly Christian culture. There was widespread respect for the Christian faith. But when he returned a number of years later, having been outside the culture, he was shocked by the transformation that he perceived to have taken place in England. If there was an outright hostility towards Christianity, at the very least, Christianity was ignored, sort of at best, as irrelevant. But at worst, there seemed to be a polite antagonism to the Christian faith. It was a uh, surprise to him how much the culture had changed. One of my professors at Westminster Seminary in California had a similar experience. He served as a uh, missionary in our denomination over in the south of France. He was gone for a number of years, and this was during the 60s and the 70s and all the upheaval here. And he said, uh, in a similar way, when he left, he felt that America was a predominantly Christian culture. Christians were respected. He, he said he really valued golfing. He said pastors got discounts at golf clubs, at golf courses. There were uh, perks that were given as a sign of respect. And when he came back, he found that the culture had changed in a remarkable way, that America was no longer, at least in his estimation, a Christian country. Things uh, change very quickly, and oftentimes we don't see what is happening. 
We don't see the hostility oftentimes before it is upon us. And therefore, however our culture uh, changes, God alone is in control of that. However our culture changes, we need a theology of persecution. We need to understand how to make sense of persecution and opposition to our faith. We need to know how we are to handle it, how we are to respond when it occurs. And again, what Peter says in this passage is very surprising. He says, don't be surprised when it happens, as though something strange were happening to you. But rather, he says, rejoice! You are blessed, you who are reviled. Really? Blessed for being reviled? He says, do not give in to the temptation to return evil for evil and abandon your faith in Christ, but rather entrust yourself to God and continue to do good, even to the very ones who are persecuting you. This is your calling and your life as Christians. Peter encourages us in this passage then to entrust ourselves to God and to do good in uh, a difficult situation. And Peter uh, sort of calls us to do that, to entrust ourselves to the Lord and to continue to do good by giving us in this passage both a positive reason and a negative reason. And in his instruction, by giving us those two reasons, he sort of creates sort of like a magnetic field by which he intends to orient your heart a certain way towards entrusting the Lord and doing good. You remember the scientific experiment you did involving, uh, you got out the dish, and then you put a bar magnet, there was a north and a south pole on the magnet, and then you put iron filings over it, and all the iron filings sort of oriented themselves along the magnetic field. What Peter is doing with this positive and this negative reason is he is causing us to be drawn towards Christ and repelled by the opposite extreme, the alternative, which is to abandon our faith in Jesus Christ when it begins to cost us. And uh, in that case, facing judgment without the help of Christ. He is trying to orient us by a positive view and a negative view. Heaven and hell hang in the balance, he is reminding us. And he is telling us these things in order to orient our hearts towards entrusting the Lord and seeking to do good. So let's look at this, how we are drawn, how we are repelled, and then we're going to see how, uh, what he is orienting our hearts to as he draws and repels us simultaneously is towards entrusting ourselves to God and doing good. First of all, let's look at the way in verses 12 through 14 that he, uh, Peter seeks to draw us to persevere in our faith in Jesus Christ. He says, uh, again, don't be surprised. Did you catch how, how uh, odd, I've alluded to it several times, this instruction is, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you and you are being reviled for the name of Christ. But rather, verse 13, rejoice. Verse 14, you are blessed. And that is the reason you are to rejoice, because when you're being reviled for the name of Jesus Christ, you are to say, happy is my condition. And you are to rejoice out of that sense of happiness that fills your heart. How in the world can you rejoice when you are being reviled? There's a perspective that Peter gives us. He says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you. In, uh, as part of Peter's theology of persecution, in the book of 1 Peter, he tells us that trials uh, always serve to confirm. That may be a little bit different from the way that we sometimes think about the way that trials, trials sort of test us. They call into question the genuineness of our faith and give us an opportunity to prove that our faith is genuine. Or we say sometimes uh, trials purify 
Now, there may be uh, ways in which that is true, and certainly trials do when we experience hardship. We do cling to Christ all the more. They are, it is a purifying experience in many ways, and Scripture teaches us that. But that's just not the way that Peter is using this imagery in 1 Peter. Trials always confirm. Uh, he has talked about the, tri- the way trials confirm going back to chapter 1, verse 7. He says, uh, you, you uh, are experiencing grieved by trials of various kind, in verse 6, so that, in verse 7, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, for clarity, what Peter is saying is that trials confirm Christ. A goldsmith takes a sample of gold and he goes into his lab and he applies heat to it. When he applies heat to gold, all he will serve to do is to prove how precious is that sample of gold. And afterwards, after he has conducted his test, he will announce that it is pure gold. Now that is sort of what he is uh, talking about. These trials are sort of like you undergoing and feeling the heat of the trial, which is only serving, not to call into question whether Jesus really is the Messiah, but is only serving and will only serve ever to confirm that Jesus is pure gold. That the one that you are, have pinned your hopes upon will prove genuine, to be a genuine savior, because when he returns, what will be the result of all of this fire that we are experiencing? Jesus will prove on the day he returns to be pure gold. It will found to result in praise, glory, and honor in the day that he returns. And that is why if you look at chapter 2, verse 6, he's quoting the Old Testament where uh, God says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. It is for you who believe to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who trust in Jesus Christ will never have their hope be put to shame. It will never fail you. All the fires, just as fire can never destroy gold but only prove how precious it is, all that you experience, all the opposition, all the heat, and all the trials that you endure as a Christian will only serve to prove how precious Jesus is as a Savior on the day that he returns. You will see that Jesus is pure gold. You have not been foolish or disappointed to have put your trust in him. So trials confirm, first of all, Christ, but they also confirm you. And that's sort of Peter's point as we return to our passage here. Not only is Jesus pure gold, but you. All the trials you experience serve only to confirm that you are in Jesus Christ. Trials confirm that you are united to Jesus Christ. So let's you know, sort of look at Peter's uh, logic. Trials confirm that you are united to Jesus Christ, and it is because you are united to Jesus Christ that you are suffering. Jesus warned us, if the world hated me, know that it hated, if, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And if you now are being reviled for my name, know that it means that you are united to me, that you are now in Christ. In other words, Trials only confirm that you are actually being saved, that you belong to Jesus Christ, that you are with him, and it is because you are with him now that you are being uh, opposed. If the world hates you, do not be surprised because it hated me first. They hate you because I chose you out of the world, Jesus says, and it's because I have chosen you out of the world that they hate you. 
So your trials, this very experience of being reviled, only serves to confirm that you are saved. And if they do confirm that you are saved, that is the occasion for rejoicing. We are not to rejoice or be happy somehow because it feels good to be reviled. It doesn't. It hurts. It's painful. But what we rejoice in is the fact that because we are being reviled for the name of Jesus, it confirms that we are saved, that we are with Christ. We, as uh, Peter says here, you share in the sufferings of Christ. And inasmuch as you do, rejoice because you are with Christ. Happy is your condition. When, now, to sort of bring this down to level, how are you to think through? How are you to talk yourself through the experience of being reviled? What sort of thoughts are to fill your mind? What you need to do, ultimately, is, is to reason with yourself and understand that your condition, though you are reviled, is a happy one. Happy is my condition. Now, in what sense does that make sense? You know, it's sort of interesting. Throughout this passage, Luke seems, or, uh, Peter seems to have Luke chapter 6 in mind. Uh, Jesus' instruction there. In Luke chapter 6, as Jesus uh, gives, uh, pronounces blessing and woes, he announces a great reversal between your condition now and your condition eternally. Jesus says, for instance, first he pronounces uh, blessings. He said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. And then this ties in with our passage. Blessed are you when men hate you, when men ostracize you, when men insult you, when men scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for it means your reward is great in heaven. But then he goes on to pronounce woes as well. Again, in the great reversal. Woe to you who are rich. This is all the comfort you will ever receive. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Blessed are you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. In other words, what we are to think about as we experience this is, as hard as things are when we are reviled. Happy is our condition. How much better is it that we should be uh, reviled now and rejoice with exaltation eternally than the alternative, which is to be happy now and to have an easy life right now and to be eternally miserable. How, how far better to be reviled now for the sake of being in Jesus Christ and to be saved. How unspeakably worse would it be if our condition was that we were happy and life was easy for us right now? And the result of all of that life of comfort and ease and wealth and prosperity, the result of it was simply that we faced God's judgment without help. You may be reviled, but inasmuch as it confirms that you are with Christ and you are saved, happy, is your condition. And you may rejoice in the prospect of rejoicing with exaltation when Christ returns. So Peter, in this way, is drawing you to Jesus Christ to persevere. He is also repelling you against the alternative, which is when you are being reviled, and when your faith begins to cost you things, 
you, your temptation is to abandon Jesus Christ. He is repelling you away from the alternative, which is if you were to abandon Jesus Christ for the sake of having a comfortable life now, then in the final judgment, you would face God, you would stand before God without the help of Jesus Christ. He repels you, he causes you to shudder and recoil from that very idea that in the face of adversity, we would abandon this precious gold, our Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what he is doing in verses 15 uh, through 18. And I want to draw your attention especially to verse 17. He says, for it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? He's giving us perspective. This is the charged environment in which we live. It is time for judgment to begin. What does he mean by that? He is not saying that it is imminent, that he knows that it's about to happen in a very short amount of time. What he is saying uh, is that this is the period of time. This is the final phase in redemptive history. This is the period of time in which the judgment will come. Uh, some of you know that I, uh, uh, Lee and I have family in Iowa, and sometimes we travel to Iowa, and sometimes we go during the time of the harvest. And, you know, and Avon gets excited as we're talking about you know, the time of the harvest, and he's like, oh, are we going to see tractors in the field? Am I going to get to see tractors? And we say, we don't know. This is the time of the harvest, but we don't know whether people are actually going to be harvesting on that particular day. What we do know is the time of the harvest, so you may well see tractors, you know, combines out in the field. It's the time of the harvest. What Peter is saying, it is, it, it is the time. This time period is the one in which judgment will come. We don't know how long. We don't know if it's going to be today or tomorrow or if it's soon or if it's how long this period of time is. We do know that this is the time, this is the period of time in which judgment will come. And Peter warns us, first of all, he reminds us that judgment will begin with the house of God. As Christians, when the line forms, as it were, at the final judgment, Christians will be first in line. It begins with us. What he is uh, advising us and warning us is that we, it's not as though at, in the final judgment all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, profess faith whether they sincerely believe in him or not, will sort of be grouped together and they'll all go skating through the final judgment so that you can avoid the final judgment sort of by blending in to the crowds. It's not going to happen that way. Everyone will stand in line and face judgment. And that shouldn't surprise you. When you find yourself to be in the line, you should not say to yourself, wait a minute, I, I profess faith in Christ. I'm not supposed to be here. Now, you understand, for your experience as one who is in Christ, who has been reviled in your life, and yet who has uh, been confirmed to be in Jesus Christ in that way, you will have nothing to fear in that day. In fact, it'll be a quite a, a joyful thing. Others may be, as it were, terrified as they stand in line, but for you it'll be a time of great joy. I can't wait to get to the front of the line and say, all glory to Jesus Christ my Savior, all because of him I appeal to you. He took the judgment for all of my sin in my place. His righteousness is what I claim is my own before he gave it to me. His perfect obedience is what I stand upon. All glory. I cannot wait to get to the front and say, all glory to Jesus Christ. What a joyful occasion. And to be gladly received. 
You know, the thing is, all true Christians have been let in on the great secret, the passcode to get into heaven. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us, and we understand how it is that God accept us, accepts us on that final day. So when we stand, when true Christians have nothing to fear as they stand in the line, they know. They know that Jesus Christ has already taken judgment in their place. They can't wait to give all glory to him in that final day. But there is a warning. Peter's warning us that all of us should be diligent, as he says in his second letter, to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. To be sure that we are found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of our own to appeal to on that final day, but a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ himself, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Be diligent that you are found in Christ, having his righteousness to stand on that day. And what he does, this sort of return to his main point, if all, even Christians, must stand in the line, what must be the outcome for those who stand in that line and have no hope, who face judgment without the help of Christ? What must become, he says, what must be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? who don't take God up on his offer of Jesus Christ to suffer judgment in our place, then they will face judgment without the help of Christ. He re we, we recoil from the very prospect of being caught in that condition. But then he gives a second reason as well in verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? We need to understand what that difficulty is. Certainly it is not difficult for God to save sinners like us. Yes, Jesus did have to go to the cross and die, but that is not what he is saying. It's not with difficulty on God's part that we are saved, nor, in a sense, is it with difficulty on our part, as though we had to go, you know, undergo some Herculean effort in order to meet God's approval. We simply trust in Jesus Christ. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But when he says it is difficult, to, difficult for the righteous to be saved, what he is getting at is that it is a hard road for us to walk. Although we are redeemed in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has already accomplished our salvation, we live life in this world reviled sometimes, maligned sometimes, harshly treated for the sake of trying to please God and serve other people. It is with difficulty. It is a hard road that God has for us to walk but it's the road that leads to glory. If it is difficult for us now, and our eternal condition is going to be rejoiced with exultation, how unspeakably worse is it if the situation were reversed, if we had a very easy time of it now? What will it be for the godless man and the sinner who spurned God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ? In this way, again, it causes us to recoil from the very prospect of cutting ties with Christ when it becomes difficult. Peter uh, draws us towards Christ. He repels us from the very idea of facing God's judgment without Jesus Christ. But he does that in this uh, charged environment in which judgment can come at any time. This is the time for the judgment to come. In this charged environment, he orients us in this way so that we will entrust ourselves to a faithful God and do what is good. And I want to take those in reverse order. Because the only way that we can do good is if we entrust ourselves to God, and I want to conclude with that. But what is this calling to do good? Uh, literally, it just uh, instead of even doing what is right, it's well-doing, doing well to others. 
In verse 15, he speaks of sort of the alternative to doing good, being a murderer and a thief and an evildoer and a troublesome meddler. When you are reviled for your faith, you know how easy it is to become angry in your heart and respond in anger and uh, take sort of an embattled view to those who are mocking your faith, to harden your own heart towards them. It is easy when faith is being mocked in our culture to take an us versus them attitude as though we who are Christians and here are, uh, are here in the church, we are the ones towing the line. And the world out there is uh, falling apart. And sort of take a false us versus them attitude. Whereas the whole mission of the church is to be sort of like the life raft that's just saying, all aboard, all aboard, all who come, come and join us. That you too may be saved in the day when Christ comes again. We are to be very open-hearted in that sense. We are not to take an embattled stance when we are persecuted and to harden our hearts against those who are doing wrong. Our role, our calling as Christians, is to continue to do good. And Peter has, uh, first of all, Jesus calls us, again in Luke 6, he calls us, love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Love your enemies, even those who would be your enemies, those too you are to love, and do good, and lend to them. And Peter has called us to that uh, very end in the same way. He calls us, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves to be the servants of all people, every human creature. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is God's recipe for how we are to respond even in difficult situations. If you go to work and you serve someone who is crooked, Maybe they aren't doing anything illegal, or maybe they haven't been caught doing anything illegal, but they're crooked, and it is a very hard environment, and you are being harshly treated. How are you to respond as a Christian in that situation? Peter says, to the good and to the gentle, as well as to the unreasonable or the crooked, you are to serve them and to do good work for them. Maybe some of you are in that. You're in a, a difficult work environment. Your calling is to do good in the workplace. We are to do good in our marriages as well. So that even if somebody uh, uh, in chapter 3 says uh, a, a woman is married to a man who is not a believer, she is to exhibit holy behavior out of reverence for God to that unbelieving man in an, in an effort to win him. She is to do good even to an unbelieving husband. And husbands are to honor their wives as those who are fellow heirs with them of the grace of life. Who are their equals? They are to honor them not as inferiors, but as equals and uh, fellow heirs of the grace of life. So we are to do good no matter our situation. And while, uh, before we leave chapter 2, remember where he says, honor the king. So, uh, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the king as one in authority or governors and so on and so forth. This week we inaugurated a new president. And you'll have lots of opportunities this week as Christians to engage in discussions about President Obama, who is leaving office, and President Donald Trump, who has just stepped into office. We have a calling to do good. And part of doing good, Peter says, is honoring the king. We don't honor, you remember, we don't honor merely the institution of the presidency or the office of the president. We honor the man himself as one made in God's image. 
he too is a fellow creature. And we need to be careful as we engage in discussions this week how we talk about our candidates, whether President Obama and his legacy as he's leaving or whatever you may think about that, and then uh, Trump as we look towards the future. There are many who are not honoring the president that was or that is now. We need to be a people who are doing good. But the only way that we can do good and serve in difficult situations when oftentimes our faith is being opposed and attacked is by looking to Jesus Christ and entrusting ourselves to him. I want to draw your attention back in our passage to verse 14 where it says, You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You and I cannot do good as we are called to do good in our own strength. But rather, as we serve others, look uh, back to verse 11, we are to, uh, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength with God, which God supplies. The Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you, and it's the, uh, that's Holy Spirit which is strengthening you as you seek to serve others. It is not with your own strength that you can possibly fulfill this calling, but you must ask the Holy Spirit give you that strength. And finally, you need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as you consider your, uh, the prospect of persecution. Ask yourself how it was for Jesus Christ. You remember that he himself also entrusted himself to his faithful creator. If you look uh, back at chapter 2, verse uh, 23, you remember he too was reviled. And he did not revile in return, but while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know how Jesus was uh, reviled as he hung on the cross. You know that, first of all, the crowds mocked him and said, you, here's the one who saved others, but he cannot even save himself. They were reviling him. And you know that Jesus was perfectly capable of saving himself from the cross. He could have uttered his name, as we talked about in Sunday school today, and, uh, you know, I am, and all of the crowds and the soldiers would have fell powerless at his feet. He could have called down 12 legions of angels. If he suffered on the cross and was reviled, it is not because he needed to endure that. It was only out of great love for you and for me as he took our sin and bore it and went all the way to his death. You will never have strength to endure being reviled unless you see the way your Savior was reviled for you as he bore your sin on the cross. Again, all of the cultural elites in Jesus' day, the chief priests and the scribes, all the respected leaders in that community were there. And they too mocked Jesus Christ and they said, uh, if, you know, uh, let God save him if God delights in him. They were implying that since you are dying, God does not delight in you. God himself is rejecting and abandoning you, Jesus, now that you are dying on the cross. In that moment, too, Jesus entrusted himself to his faithful creator. He went all the way to the cross. Of course God was able to spare his son, but he did not spare his own son in order that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. You will gain strength. The Holy Spirit will strengthen you as you look to Jesus Christ and you see the great love that he showed you in bearing your sin and receive, being reviled during his life for your sake. It will give you the strength that you need rather than uh, when you're reviled, returning, retaliating, harboring murder and anger and evil in your hearts towards others. 
as you look to Jesus Christ, it'll fill you with the strength that you need to love as he loved, to bless those who persecute you, to pray for those who malign you, as Jesus calls us to do. Jesus not only feeds us with that good word, the good news of who he is, but he feeds us here at the table as well. And today, as you uh, face a hard road ahead, suffering trials of various kinds and being reviled, he strengthens you with the knowledge that his body and blood were separated for you at the cross in order that you might be forgiven. He took judgment in your place in order that when judgment begins with the household of God, you will have nothing to fear, but only rejoice with exultation that your Savior has come to deliver you. It may be hard now, but we need to be fed by Jesus Christ, strengthened in our hearts that we might pursue this calling of entrusting ourselves to God and continuing to do good to everyone around us for the glory and honor of God's name. He strengthens you today. If you are with us today and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you not participate today, that you simply allow the bread and the wine to pass you by. The reason is that scripture warns us that if we eat and drink and we don't really trust in Jesus Christ, we don't really see our need for Jesus to have died in our place, then we'll be eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. But today, as we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would uh, consider God's offer, that today, even now, God offers Jesus as, as a savior to take judgment in your place. And I want to speak as well I want to charge those who are growing up in Christian homes that you personally need to put your faith in Jesus Christ as well and come to this table. Judgment begins with the household of God and none of us will simply skate by by having grown up Christian. But today I call you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It is the time in which judgment will come and there's no occasion for delay. Personally put your faith in Jesus Christ and know that during this time Christ offers himself to you an all-sufficient Savior. Elders, would you come forward and help distribute the bread and the wine?